Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, but before we dive uh, into that, let me just bring you in uh, to the COVID conversation at Fox Valley Church. The elders will be meeting on Tuesday night, and we'll be discussing again, you know, the next steps as, as the state has changed, also what will be happening at Fox Valley Church. And as I talk about COVID, I do need to say, you know, people have been asking, you know, hey, Tom, uh, have you had COVID? And uh, no, I have not. I, I got a couple negative tests, and then I've also given blood, and they've looked for antibodies, and they can't find any antibodies in me, uh, so it doesn't appear that I've ever had COVID, uh, but then people say, well, Tom, have you been vaccinated? And yes, I have been vaccinated. Uh, going back, I got the first shot back in April, and so I've been vaccinated, and that'll play into uh, some of the comments later on. In, in the message. So that's a little bit what's happening. Uh, let me bring you some good news because I'm still on the high from last Sunday when we were meeting outside. But uh, many of you uh, probably know, but maybe many of you don't, is that uh, CJ, our student ministries director, and his wife, Elisa, they had their baby. And so Nora's been born and uh, is part. So it's exciting uh, for them. CJ will be out for a couple of weeks with paternity leave. Everybody's doing well. The baby's doing well, and Lisa's doing well, and so we have a lot to rejoice. Well, I want to ask a simple question. Where is Susan? You say, Susan who, right? Well, Susan uh, is the one who was Queen Susan in the book of Narnia, right? The Chronicles of Narnia and as you read those chronicles, it's amazing how she is this queen, she is a heroine, she is the queen of comfort, she's just an amazing personage in the entire chronicle series. And then you get to the very last book, the final battle, and the question is asked, where's Susan? Why is she not here? And here's what Peter says. My sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. The cousin Eustace jumps in and he says, yes. And whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those Funny games we used to play when we were children. You know what Eustace is saying. That was good then, but I don't need Aslan and Narnia now. It's over with. Well, someone else jumps in and says, Oh, Susan, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick an invitation. She's always a jolly sight, too keen on being grown up. And there's one word I just want to splash against this section of the final battle. Compromise. Selling out. Settling. Accommodating to the world. And that is a big issue in the church today. It's a big issue of people that start walking with Jesus. They continue for a while. And that was good back then. 
I can just coast now. So the question out before us is, how do you know if you've compromised with the world? How do you know if you've settled? How do you know if you're selling out? How do you know if you're accommodating to the world rather than to Jesus Christ? If you have your Bible, we want to get back into the apocalypse, better known for many as the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 14, and as you uh, recall, and as you're turning there, uh, maybe uh, we'll just read it first, and then we'll look into some of the details again and and bring us back since we weren't here uh, for two weeks in the book. Revelation 14, verse 1, Then I looked... And there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harp. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Father, thank you for your word. The power of apocalyptic literature. It, it, it kindles our imagination. It fuels our mind to think and imagine what you have for your people. It makes dramatic so it gets imprinted on our minds, pictures and images of what's happening. So God, we pray that this morning your spirit would speak boldly, loudly, clearly into our hearts that we, would not end up like Susan, no longer a friend of Jesus. Pray in his name. Amen, amen, amen. Well, as we look at this, let me bring us back into uh, where we've been and, and why we're studying this now. And of course, what I've tried to say was that the book of Revelation was written with a purpose. It was written with a purpose because people struggle in life. It wasn't written just for the last seven years of human history. It was written in the first century at the end of it, and it was written for the church, for people like you and me that were living in chaotic, confusing Times And we certainly could use those words to describe the time in which we live. Time of conflict, chaos, and confusion. Almost no matter what direction you turn, someone has a different opinion, a different view, different ideas, and it's as if this, this world 
is just splintering and spreading apart. Well, that was much, as I've tried to say, what happened in the first century. And so when we read the book of Revelation, some people say, well, wait a minute, it's just the end times. It's not. It's written for those believers at the end of the first century, and it's written for us so that we would understand what I've also called the story behind the story. Why is there so much conflict in the church and outside the church? Why is there so much confusion? Why is there so much chaos? Why is all this happening? And the story behind the story, remember I gave a couple images. One was the idea of Job, right? If you ask, why did all of that happen to Job? The destruction, the loss of his livestock, his servants being taken away, some of them killed. What happened with his children? They died. And we could say, well, wait a minute, there were some natural disasters, there was windstorms, there was fire from heaven, what all that could be. There was the Sabaeans, there were the Chaldeans, and we say, that's why Job ended up the way he did. But if you know the story of Job, you know there's a story behind the story. And that is that the devil came to God and said, I'd like to mess with one of your servants. Now, which story is true? Is it true that the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and the windstorm and the fire and all this destroyed Job's family? And you would say, yeah, that's true. But is it true that there was an enemy working to destroy Job and his faith? And you would say, yes. What we're trying to say is which is more true or which is primary or better, which has priority. And it's the story behind the story. I gave this illustration as well to kind of bring us into the story behind the story, right? When my kids were young, I say, hey, where did you come from? And they say, well, God made me. And that's really true, isn't it? God is a creator and he creates. He made them and they knew it. But guess what happened? When they got into about ninth grade, they learned biology. And we know biology, right? And we don't need to go into it this morning. But all of a sudden, if I said, where did you come from? They had an entirely different answer. Now, which one is more true? Is it true that there's a sperm and an egg and somehow they get together? You say, yeah, absolutely that's true. But is there a story behind the story? that God created each and every one of us in his image, right? Let me give you another one. Jesus. If I asked you the question, who killed Jesus? You would probably say something like this. The Jewish leaders conspired with the Roman leaders and they moved against Jesus and they had him crucified. But when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2, he said, well, let me give you the story behind the story. This was all foreordained by God. God had Jesus crucified, which is more true. You say, both of them are true. That's what we're doing here. Is it, I want you to recognize this. Yes, I can explain the chaos, the confusion, all of the, the conflict that's happening in the church could look at politics, I could look at social dynamics, I could look at the history of thought, I could look at the development of where things have gone, 
where I can say, wait a minute, as much as those things are true, there's a story behind the story. And that is there's an enemy that's working against God's people, seeking to destroy, divide, and conquer them. So that's why we're, we're in this, is I want us to understand that something is happening in this world and you need spiritual eyes to see beyond politics. You need spiritual eyes to see beyond science. You need spiritual eyes to see behind the philosophy of human thought and how things have developed. And so the book of Revelation brings us into that so that we could live the way God wants us to live. Now, I want to bring us into one more piece as we get into the Romans 14. I've talked about this before, and some people are asking me, you know, well, how do you view this? The reason I don't view the book of Revelation as just the final seven years, even though it does talk about the end of end times, is because over and over we see a pattern in Scripture where there's this talk of Antichrist. So 2,000 years ago, John, who wrote the book of Revelation in 1 John, he talked about right now there are many Antichrist, plural, amongst us. That's what John said. There's many of them. And then, of course, we know that there were many false prophets. There were lots of them at work. And they have been at work. All through human history, you go back into ancient Israel, there were false prophets. We wouldn't call Antichrist because Christ hadn't come yet, but there were people that were opposed to the Messiah. And at times it gets intense. And that's why I have darker lines at times. But what I want you to know is that these are cycles or patterns that keep repeating. So when John wrote this in roughly 90, 93 A.D., some 60 years after the resurrection, Nero was one time looked at as the Antichrist. And so as we looked at a couple weeks ago, when you read Revelation 17, you start saying, whoa, is this Nero? Well, we know now it's not, because we're still here, 2,000 years later. See, and that's what happens is God wants us to be aware of these patterns. Jesus said the same thing. And by the way, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said there's going to be many false prophets. But the New Testament, as well as the Old, also talks about the false prophet or the Antichrist. So there's the the. So John in 1 John says, yeah, there's many Antichrists, but there will be the final Antichrist. There will be the false prophet. When Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said that there will be the man of lawlessness, which we link, because of the description, to the Antichrist. So we see that, and we see the intensity, and Jesus says, you won't be deceived. When it's all coming together, it's like a woman going in to give birth. The birth pangs get increasingly more intense, and that's what we'll see at the end of the end. It's not going to be a guessing game. You will know when you're in the final of the final. But what we need to be aware of is that there are all these different things going on 
over and over. Now this morning, as we dive into Rome, uh, Romans, Revelation chapter 14, I'm going to make two main points. The first one is this, Jesus and his people are victorious or will be victorious in the end, all of it. Jesus already accomplished it. It's going to happen, but we're waiting for it to happen. So it will be victorious. Now, why do I want to bring this in? Because we need hope. We've just read chapter 12 and chapter 13. And by the end of 13, you're like, is there anything that's good in this book? Is anything going to happen? I'm telling you some great things are going to happen. And that's where we go today is that God wants us to have hope. And the second point I'm going to make is that true character matters. True character matters, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, so we've got this dramatic showdown, right? In chapter 12, you remember the story, there's a dragon. God gives us his graphic, symbolic, powerful, gross, bold, dramatic picture of a woman giving birth. Her feet are in the stirrups. The baby's ready to come and there's a dragon standing between her legs, right? I mean, it's graphic so that we don't forget it. And then we get the picture of this beast and we get a picture of another beast and, and all of this is happening. So, as we talked about last time, two weeks ago, I said there's this dragon and then there's the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, and they make up this false trinity. They're mocking the true trinity. Well, to be more clear, the dragon, as we found out in Revelation 12, is the devil. And the devil is at work, and as he moves and works his woes on this earth, remember he was hurled to the earth. He was hurled because he lost the battle against the angels in heaven. He gets hurled down here and he's waging war. This is not a vague war. It's a war against you. It's a war against your marriage. It's a war against your family. And the devil has only one mission in mind and that's to destroy you. He wants to discourage you. He wants to turn you against your neighbor, maybe sitting on the row behind you. He wants to stir the hearts and people in our communities against each other. He wants to get this nation, the United States, into an uproar, everybody against everybody, and he wants this to happen around the globe, a huge conflagration, a fire that would not be able to be put out. Well, he's going to work with the Antichrist. That is the beast of the sea. Now, remember, the Antichrist is a political leader. That's why in the first century they said it was Nero. We know that the mark is 666. We looked at that up just briefly. But that that's the mark of this person. And he's going to be a political leader. He's going to have power. He's going to have clout. He's going to try to work under the direction of the devil to bring destruction to this world. And then there's the false prophet. The false prophet, right, is the, the religious side of the whole triangle. And that is, or the Trinity, and it's an unholy Trinity. He is going to try to get people to worship the Antichrist so that all people 
are actually falling down and worshiping the devil and his kingdom. They're all working in tandem. It's an unholy trinity that parodies or mocks the true trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Spirit points everybody to Jesus Christ as the true king. He shows us in his word how the Old Testament from Genesis to Revelation is constantly pointing to the person of Christ. That's the role of the Spirit, to enlighten our minds, to show us the truth of God's word so that we can walk in it, to guide us into truth. The Son is always exalting the Father and obeying the Father. Remember Jesus said, I always do what my Father tells me to do, right? So the the Trinity is working together. But the difference is that there's only one God. Three persons, but one God. The false trinity, the unholy trinity, is mocking the same thing. The false prophet is always pointing to the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is trying to get everybody ultimately to worship the devil. And that's what's happening in the book of Revelation. That, that, that's what we've been reading. That's, that's what we've been studying. And so now we get into chapter 14, and God says, okay, enough of the heavy. Let's move you into hope. Let's move you into a place of victory. So let, let's jump over into there. This is really, really helpful. John says, I looked and before me was the Lamb. Now this gets exciting. I mean, I can hardly sit down thinking about the Lamb. It's the Lamb of chapter 5 that we read in the book of Revelation. The Lamb that is gathering people up, every ethnic group, people from every nation of the world, people from every people group. It's that Lamb and look what he's doing. He's standing on Mount Zion. He's standing on Mount Zion. We'll talk about all this in just a moment, that he is the one that is victorious. There's no escaping it, that he is the one that is victorious over all of this. So we read in the passage, they're singing the song, so you begin to link chapter 5 with chapter 14, that this lamb is the one, Jesus Christ, the one who could open the seal, unleash this entire vision so that we would know the story behind the story, so that we would also know the end of the end of time. So this lamb is the one, Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song, it says in Revelation 5.9, worthy are you to take the book and break its seal and release for us in the first century and the 21st century this vision of God at work in the world for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and nation that is the picture of this lamb now why does it say Mount Zion well because all through the Bible remember I've told all of us dwell in scripture almost every symbol in the book of Revelation, is found somewhere in the Bible. Too many of us break our Bibles up. We say there's this Old Testament, there's this New Testament, and keep them apart. Encouraging you, don't do this. Read this as one big God story, one big book. Read from Genesis all the way to Revelation. You're going to see these symbols are uh, popping out all the time. So Mount Zion, that's the mountain of victory that's the mountain of deliverance that's the mountain where the messiah is going to return now we see how god is going to bring this victory through the lamb and that he is the one who wins well as we think about this and you can just do a search 
Put this in your Bible app and just hit on Zion and all these passages are going to come up about Mount Zion. And over and over you're going to see this is where God's victory is. This is where He's coming. This is where it's all happening. This is the place He loves. This is the place where He will show His power. Over and over and over we see that. So then people ask, well where are they? When John says, I looked, and then he says, before me was the Lamb, are they on earth? Or are they in heaven? It's a good question. I personally think that they're in heaven. That John is still getting this vision. Now why am I saying this? It's not that it's not going to happen that Jesus is going to return to this earth and that He may return right there to Mount Zion. I mean, I stood on Mount Zion. Kathy and I loved being in Jerusalem and standing on Mount Zion and seeing the spectacular vision. Jesus may return right there, and that may be the picture, but I think what he's getting here is this heavenly vision, and I would lean a little bit into Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, where it says that they have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Notice how the writer of Hebrews said that. To the city of the living God, that's where he comes, that's where he turns, the heavenly Jerusalem. And I think that that's what's going on here. I think what we're getting is a vision of what's happening in heaven, a picture of all the angelic worship, a picture of all that is taking place. And then we'll see in a moment who these 144,000 are. But before we get there, I need you to look a little bit back into chapter 13, verses 16 to 18. Because now we're going to begin to see who the 144,000 are. It, which is the false prophet, verse 16, the second beast, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, forcing allegiance to the Antichrist. Now, that's why I got mine on my left arm, so there'd be no confusion. <laughs> just kidding. And while we're talking about this, let me just say, I've been asked, uh, is getting the vaccine a mark of the Antichrist? A mark of the beast? It is not. It is not. Christians, while we love our Bible, we can get stirred up and confused. There will be no confusion about getting the mark of the beast. You're not going to be tricked into it. We're talking about heart loyalties. We're talking about people being set and fixed against God, as we'll see in a moment, and against Jesus Christ. There's not going to be confusion about this. So, they're forcing allegiance to the Antichrist. Notice the strength of that. Verse 17, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark of the beast. Now, will there be mimics, copying, something that may look like it? Yeah. That's the whole idea of the spiral is that it's going to be continually, things will be happening. But then he goes on, but they have the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, 666, right? So we get this 666 idea coming out of this, but what I want you to focus on is the idea of the mark. Notice that there's two marks. What we have in names, a mark is ownership. It's sealing. You are controlled by that one who has the mark. 
And so when we get into chapter 14, we get the name. Well, when you have the name, that's who owns you. That's who bought you. That's where you're sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question starts coming then, well, who are these 144,000? Well, there's two views. The first view is that this 144,000 is a set group at the end of end times where they will be on this earth. I don't think that fits any of the context of Revelation. I don't think it sets with the flow of history. I don't think it fits with Revelation chapter 7. I think that the 144,000 is all of God's redeemed people. The 144,000 is all of God's redeemed people. Now, how do I get there? Throughout the book of Revelation, we see this over and over, numbers are often used symbolically. The number 12 is used of completion or perfection. You have the 12 tribes of Israel, i.e. Revelation chapter 7. You have the 12 apostles, the New Testament, which copies the pattern. There's the blending of all of God's people. There's only one distinct group of people, and that's God's redeemed people. Now, let's think about this, is that the Old Testament people, they had to look forward to the cross. They put their faith in the promised Messiah looking ahead. We, in the New Testament, living right now, we have to look back 2,000 years. But what do we do? We put our trust in Christ. Everybody puts their trust in Christ, whether Old Testament or New Testament. Now, obviously, they didn't understand what we understand in terms of who the person of Christ is, but it's all by faith, and it's all one group of people we see this as it unfolds in the book of revelation is that absolutely absolutely the word israel is found and pictures of israel as god's people in the new testament is found it's not just an old testament word galatians 6 16 the people of god or the new israel or the true israel we see paul talks about it with the true circumcision over and over we see this peter wrote about being a holy nation talking about christians but we're pulling these images together and so he's talking about all of the redeemed thousands That number is another number of completion. This is a picture of power. Remember, we've just come out of Revelation 12, Revelation 13, all the conflicts, and we have the 12 times 12 times 1,000. There's this majestic picture of all God's redeemed people. And then we get a picture of the Lamb on Mount Zion, the place of victory, the place of deliverance, the place where we will experience the power and presence of God like never before. It's a majestic picture, and all of this is going to start unfolding as we look just a little bit more. So we've talked about the 144,000, his name and his father. I probably need to get that up there. Uh, We need to get that up there, that the name of his father written on their foreheads. This is in contrast to the name of the the, the devil or the 666. And then look what happens here. I heard a sound from heaven. The first one he hears is sound of rushing waters. Then he hears a loud peal of thunder. And then he hears the sound of a harp or harps. 
all of those are pictures over and over of worship, of people celebrating, of people rejoicing, of victory, over and over. So the sound of heaven is celebration. It's an excitement. It's, it's joy. Harps are often a picture of joy, of, of, of good things happening. And all of that is coming together as, look what this says, they sang, who's they? The they is the 144,000, not, I don't think, a limited subset or small group or just 144,000 people. It's all the redeemed. And they, the 144,000, sang a new song. Well, what is that new song? Well, if you're reading the book of Revelation from chapter 1 all the way to 22, you'd be in chapter 5 and you'd begin to see they're learning a new song, a song of redemption, the one that I quoted a few moments ago in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They're rejoicing over the work of God, and that's the picture that is taking place here. They're before the throne. They're before the four living creatures and the elders. This angelic host, this amazing work of God, the 24, probably a picture of the, again, the, the, tw- the 12 tribes, the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. You get this picture, these angels that represent and are, are behind what God is doing through his people. And look what it says. No one could learn the songs except the redeemed of God's people, right? Because this is something that is in the heart of God's people. This is something we celebrate. And this is why there's a division between the marks. This is why there is so much conflict is that you either name the name of Jesus or you don't. And he says, look at this. They had been redeemed from the earth. So we're, we're there. Jesus and his people are victorious. They're singing. They're celebrating. It's an exciting time. But guess what? It already started. That's why we worship on Sunday morning. We want to sing songs that bring us into the celebration of the work of Jesus Christ. But let's take a moment and look at true character. Because this is where we end up in compromise. These are the 144,000. They did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. Now, some people want to take this as literal. Why all of a sudden do we start taking things as literal? When the Bible uses the picture of virgin and virginity as a picture of purity, and that the virgins, over and over, Israel is called the virgin of God. You just Google that. You'll see it again, or, or uh, go through your Bible app, and just, just look at a search. Over and over, we find this idea of virgin tied to God's people, and so that becomes the significant play here of what has happened. Second Kings chapter 19, verse 21, Isaiah 37, the virgin daughter, it even says, of Zion, over and over. Now, he's not talking about being celibate. He's not saying there's anything wrong with women. What he's talking about is this, this purity And God's redeemed people are not trampling on what God created. God created marriage. He thought it all up. And what's happened? 
we come into the 21st century and we think we can overturn history and God's word. We can define marriage any way we want. We come into the 21st century and we look at ourselves and we say, we're supreme. I can choose whatever gender I want. And I always want to be careful because this area of gender confusion is real and it's serious. And it's causing a lot of hardship in a lot of families. But God said, I'm the creator. In the beginning, God created. That's what it says, Genesis 1.1. When he uses that word creator, like I was saying last week in the outdoor service, he's saying, I stand as supreme in this universe. There's no one outside of me. I stand over everyone and everything. I am the creator. And then he goes on and he says, I created human beings, male and female. We don't get to rewrite this. We may not believe it. We may not trust it. We may think that our will is so sovereign. But God's saying, you can't have it both ways. You're either going to trust my word or you're going to trust the world. You're either going to trust God or you're going to go in the direction of the world. The whole book of Revelation, as you'll see in our final message, is a book that drives us to a place of a wedge. Two women, two cities, two marks. Over and over, there's this wedge. You've got to choose. And that's what's happening in our culture today. People have elevated the self. God's word is old. It's outdated. It's ancient. God doesn't know what he's talking about. No, God does know what he's talking about. He did create. He is the creator. We are made in his image. He made us male and female. And we should celebrate that. He made marriage the way he wanted to make marriage. Let's celebrate that. Sex, he thought it all up. This is God's idea. It's sex in marriage as God set the parameters, not the way our culture is doing it. So over and over, when, when John gets here, he's talking about true character matters. What he's saying is, there's a line of character where if you cut yourself, you bleed Jesus. That's the mark of God's name on your forehead. Look what it says next. It says not only is this idea of purity, it says they follow the Lamb, over and over, Jesus said, follow me. Mark 8, Jesus said, follow me, right? Pick up your cross, deny yourself. When you deny yourself, what are you doing? You're saying that, yeah, I'm going to let Jesus lead. He, he's the one. And then it says, wherever he goes, we submit, we obey, we follow. That's what this is. And that, the they, God's redeemed people do. Then it says they, the 144,000, they were purchased. They were bought. You were bought with a price. Do you know every time you read that, you should say, wow, you are valuable. The infinite blood of the God-man was spilled for you because he loves you, because he adores you. He wanted you in his kingdom. I mean, these are amazing thoughts. He 
purchase people from all mankind from the beginning of creation all the way until Jesus returns as the gift or the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. You are a gift. That's what first fruits is here. You are a gift to God. Wow! How can you be a gift to God? But that's what he's saying. You are a gift to the Lamb. This stands in contrast to the world who you've got to work yourself up and you've got to be a money, you've got to have power, you've got to do this or you've got to do that to have value. And God is saying, no, no, no. I'm the one who determines that. Look what it says. No lie was found in their mouths and they are blameless. Now he's not talking about literally a lie again. What he's talking about is he's taking this in an image or a symbolic way that the idea of a lie, we see it over and over, is that we see it in the New Testament. You get to the end of Revelation, you're going to see it again, is that liars are in the eternal lake of fire. What he's talking about are people that are lying to themselves, lying to the world, and lying to God that he is the creator, that he is God over all. And people are lying to themselves. They're lying about his word. They're lying about his authority. They're lying about the direction of his And can I just say this parenthetically? Part of the reason so much anxiety exists in this world, part of the reason there is so much fear is we do not believe that in my spiral and my timeline that, that, that God is working out his purposes to completion. We think this world is out of control because this world tells us there's no ultimate purpose. Why do they say that? Because we've pushed God to the fringe. He doesn't matter. Keep your beliefs to yourself. And what God is saying is, no, I am bringing history exactly where I want it to go. And he's telling you and me this too. He's saying it will not careen off the road. It's not going to spill into the ditch. I am leading history to the very end. And I'm bringing my redeemed with me. This is the hope. This is the promise. We will see fear, anger, and anxiety diminished as we see that there's a perfect plan of God working it out. So now what happens with compromise? People begin to compromise because they want to fit in. It's a kid's story. Just like Susan said, I don't need that anymore. I'm no longer a friend of Narnia. It's more important for me to be liked by the world than to be with Jesus. That wedge is being driven. There's a line of decision. There's a point of place, and that's why John's writing. He's wanting the church, you and me, to stand firm in true character, to be pure. He says blameless, the last word there. He's not talking about being perfect. He's talking about being in line with the plan and purposes of God. That's what blameless always means, that we're always walking in the plan and purposes of God. But people are compromised. So let me just be really clear about how compromise takes place. Someone tells a racial joke. And you laugh. And you say it's no big deal. Say, oh, it doesn't matter. You can look the other way once. But once you start looking the other way, you're starting to set a pattern of looking 
the other way. When you say or hear people walk all over marriage as if God hasn't said what marriage is, we compromise. We're settling to be welcomed and accepted by this world. When someone at the office or at work tells you, hey, it's no big deal, or at school, hey, a little cheating, hey, this isn't a problem, it's compromise. And over and over we see just little compromises playing out, and we're no longer standing firm on truth. That's what he's talking about here, and that's where we need to go. Over and over we see this. Dating. Oh, everybody's doing it. No, they're not. God's redeemed people are saying there's a way to live before marriage in purity and chastity. Marriage. You don't walk outside your marriage vows. There's a way to live in marriage. Work. Racism. All these different things. Every person is made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what nation you're from, what ethnic group you're aligned with. It doesn't matter. God bought his people with a great price. Now we all mess up. Myself included. We all will compromise. And there's only one place to go when you do. Own it. Identify it. And that's why we go to the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. Now, if everybody has the elements... If not, the servers will pass these around. If we could get some for the servers, thank you. Uh, if Just lift your hand and we'll get the elements to you. We all find ourselves getting twisted and turned and pulled. But when we walk blameless, we come to the place where we own. And we say, yes, I've compromised. You don't deny it. You don't sweep it under the rug. You take the bread and you sit and you recall when Jesus said on the night I was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is a picture of my body. Symbolic, yes. Full of grace, absolutely. That we would find the grace of God bringing back a body after we've compromised. After we've fallen short, after we've set our affections on the things of the world. And Jesus said, as often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. That same night, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of redemption. Remember, read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, dwell in it. We all know that this is the cup in the Passover meal, the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, the cup that allows us to be right with God, the cup that says when you've compromised, confess your sins, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we compromise, own it. And go to God and say, God, thank you for sending your son to wipe me clean again. As often as you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together.
And that is walking blameless. Not perfect, blameless in the ways and the paths of God. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that it speaks powerfully into our hearts. Thank you that you've given us a vision of the Lamb, the one who could open the seals, the one who could reveal the contents of the book, of the story behind the story. That Lamb is on Mount Zion right now. Thank you for that picture. And thank you that one day he's coming back as king and as judge. And it's in his name we pray.